Hey everyone, Giordano here from The Juice Media. Welcome back to The Juice Media Podcast, a companion to the Honest Government ad series. This is episode 20, a companion to our latest Honest Government ad about the News Media Bargaining Code, or as we call it, the News Corp Bargaining Code. Because we can all agree that Facebook is the problem. It's become too powerful, pays fuck all taxes, promotes fake news, and then it tried to bully us. Your government. We can't let such power fall into the hands of this billionaire. That power needs to stay in the hands of this billionaire who's become too powerful, pays fuck all taxes, promotes fake news and bullies your government. News Corp Bargaining Code. There's so much happening in the world right now that it's hard to know what to make an honest government ad about each month. But I wanted to kick off with a video about the news media code for a few reasons. Firstly, because this legislation which the Australian government has just passed into law with support from both the opposition and crossbench is important. It fundamentally alters the relationship between big media and big tech. Secondly, because it's not just Australia's problem. Other governments around the world are sure to try and emulate this legislation. And thirdly, because despite its importance and international relevance, there's a lot of confusion about what this law actually does. And that's precisely where the Juice Media podcast comes in handy as a companion to the Honest Government ad, giving us a chance to unpack and discuss this issue in more detail. Which is why I'm stoked to have as my guest today an expert on all matters legal and digital. Lizzie O'Shea, lawyer and writer, author of Future Histories, which I highly recommend reading. Lizzie is also a founder and current chair of Digital Rights Watch, which advocates for human rights online and helps people understand the latest digital shitfuckery coming out of our government, such as the online safety bill. I invited Lizzie to come on the podcast to help us better understand the news media code. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and I'll catch you on the other side. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, Lizzie O'Shea. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, I should say welcome back because this is uh, your second time here um, on, on, on the podcast. So it's really great to have you back again um, to talk about uh, the, the topic of our latest Honest Government ad, which is about the News Media Bargaining Code, or as we call it, the News Corp Bargaining Code, uh, which is legislation that our government passed just last week on the 25th of February. Uh, the legislation is hugely consequential for the future of the internet and the media, um, and yet most people don't really, well, they have a sort of a, quite a vague understanding of what the legislation is about. Um, and, you know, that's why we made this video really to help explain the legislation. Partly the confusion is because there's just so much, so much shit happening in the world right now, so that our attention is very divided, but also because both big media and big tech have launched massive communication campaigns uh, in the lead up to this legislation being passed to try and frame the debate and convince people that this code is either good for, uh, you know, uh, or it's either bad for Google and Facebook or good for media and journalism. There's been a communication battle happening uh, to win the hearts and minds of people on, on, on either side. Um, but it seems that people who really understand both the legislation and the tech have framed the code quite differently. You wrote an article in Overland last week entitled Facebook versus the media, whoever wins, we lose. Can you give us a sense of what the code entails? What do you mean by this, whoever wins, we lose? And perhaps by way of answering that question, you could start from a big picture perspective and explain what is the problem, there is a legitimate problem here, which this legislation tries to address with, with, the, way, with the state of our media, but in your opinion, from what you've written, it doesn't do the right job. Can you take, walk us through that? Give us a little bit of a sense of what's going on here. 
I would love to, Giordana, because I agree with you. Some of the commentary around this has just been so frustrating. I feel like I was tearing my hair out watching the news at night when I saw people talking about this. So the context is our competition and consumer regulator actually did a report on the power of two dominant platforms in Australia, Google and Facebook, and made a number of recommendations about how we could bring them to heel, how we could hold them to account, what kind of law reform we needed to engage in to deal with their dominance. And one of the recommendations that came out of that was a code for uh, rebalancing a bargaining um, the bargaining relationship between media companies and tech platforms. So the focus was always on Facebook and Google. Um, and I should say the competition and consumer regulator made a lot of recommendations other than that, which I think were very good and should have been implemented. This was the first off the rank. And so the idea was to rebalance that relationship. And it's based on an understanding that the digital age has been quite unkind to traditional media. Huge amounts of advertising revenue that used to flow to traditional news publications and news organisations now flows to tech platforms. Uh, And that's seen a decline in what we traditionally understand as the fourth estate. Um, You know, in the United States, I think half of all um, journalists have jobs have gone from newsrooms and in Australia, We've been very much affected. Uh, Over 200 newsrooms have closed over the last few years. Part of that, of course, is to do with the digital revolution, but part of it is also to do with things like coronavirus. But we absolutely have a problem where there are fewer journalists to cover really important topics. Uh, There's particular gaps in regional and rural areas, for example, uh, as well as like specialist beats and long-form investigative journalism that can be quite expensive to produce um, and and require real commitment from newsrooms. And they just don't have the revenue to be able to do that. So we've got two clear problems there. The immense power of tech platforms on our society generally, on um, how we consume information, how we connect and build our communities, particularly how journalism is done because of the change in advertising revenue. But then we also have this problem of, yeah, that that media being uh, significantly affected affected uh, as revenue of these media organisations that they traditionally relied on starts to disappear. So the code was an attempt to rebalance, as it Mm -hmm. described it, um, that relationship so that media organisations... Oh, so code. Lizzie, so just so yeah. people understand, there is there is a legitimate concern here. Like there is a real problem here that needs to be fixed because we do need a strong fourth estate. You know that is important for democracy. Like we need journalism to be a, a viable system and it needs to survive. So we're not cynical about the need for some sort of um, legislation that deals with this. Um, but sorry, I'm going to hand the mic back to you. But I just want to make people people hear that because I think it's important that um, there is a need for something to happen, and the code uh, is what's being proposed. Absolutely. Uh, I I think it's fair to say that we have a worse democracy when we don't have journalists doing their jobs to hold power to account, to be relentlessly checking what politicians say, what other policymakers say, to see whether it's true, to to verify claims. And I mean, that's just not even politicians. It's also, you know, corporate affairs and other kinds of uh, policy fields that require great journalists doing, doing lots of really important work. So I think that's a big problem that we need to contend with. And of course, I'm, I'm extremely critical of the power held by large tech platforms as well. I think that's a very legitimate problem that needs to be engaged with by policymakers all around the world. Part of the reason why I think this code attracted such interest from people in different parts of the world is these twin problems are being looked at by policymakers everywhere. I think everyone's trying to contend with both of them. And this code tries to do both at the same time, which is, I guess, I think where it falls down. Um, But the basic fundamental of it is that uh, the way it was drafted, at least, is it creates uh, a forced arbitration regime if parties can't agree 
for payment for news content that appears on digital platforms. So essentially what it's doing is it's creating an incentive for media companies and tech platforms to come to an agreement about payment for news content that appears on the platform's sites. So Facebook and, and Google most obviously, but it's it's possible that many other platforms could be designated so that the legislation applies to them. So it, it creates this backstop, a forced arbitration regime in the event that the agreements can't be struck between media and big tech. Now, I've seen, you know, a lot of people have raised uh, concerns about the code. And we discussed some of these issues in, in, the, in the video, for example, in the way that it, it disadvantages smaller publishers and independent uh, producers. Um, but I haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen many people uh, approach the problem from the angle that you have. Um, and um, it immediately struck me that, you know, you'd um, tapped into a really interesting point that people hadn't spoken about, which is that the code helps to effectively align the interests of big media and big tech, um, which kind of breaks, you know, breaks through this idea that this isn't to the advantage of one or the other. It's actually a realignment of power. Could you give us a bit of a sense of how does the code align the interests of big media and big tech? Um, if you could give us your, your take on this. Well, one of the things lots of people hate about platforms like Google and Facebook is that every interaction you have with them, they're gathering data up about you. That's their business model to know more about you so that they can sell that data to advertisers at great profit. Uh, and one of the things that's contained in this code is a couple of really interesting provisions. Uh, one of them specifically is that data collected by the platforms about users who click on news content will need to be handed over to the producer of that news content. Now, it needs to be handed over in a variety of different ways. It's got to be, you know, readable and all this, all this kind of stuff. But what we're seeing there really is that uh, the business model of surveillance capitalism, which is practiced by Facebook and Google, you know, gathering up data about users so that you can then sell that on to advertisers, it, it's really mainstream media organisations getting in on that business because now they'll be able to access data about who's clicked on that news content. That helps them turn that into advertising revenue for themselves. And so in that way, I feel like it's an alignment of both major media companies and tech platforms in the business model of surveillance capitalism, rather than say protecting users from those predatory practices by those large platforms that people hate, instead what we've seen is a system that establishes a mutual interest for both tech companies and media organizations in continuing that business model. And I think that's deeply troubling. The other thing you mentioned there was- uh, It's terrifying. To I mean, sorry, just on that point, it's, it's, no, no. I think it's really terrifying because you know people have been trying to raise awareness about privacy issues, about digital rights and all that sort of stuff. And we're hoping that our governments will step in and regulate uh, massive organizations like Facebook and Google. But this code actually shows that rather than, than stepping in and trying to curb those things, as you said, it's trying to get a whole other section of our, uh, of our life or of our existence, in this case, news and media, to participate in, in that. So it's actually an expansion, an expansion, uh, a normalization of it, let's say. Um, so in that sense, totally. it's, it's and, quite concerning. And it also begs the question, you know, if organisations like ours, Digital Rights Watch, want to advocate for better privacy protection so that these kinds of things shouldn't happen, that you can't just pass data on about users mm. between companies to advance their, you know, their cause in terms of pursuing advertising revenue, you wonder who's going to be on our side in advocating for those kinds of reforms. Of course, not tech companies, fine, we expect that, but we would expect the mainstream media 
to have some interest in user privacy, to understand why that's a human rights issue that should be dealt with in various policy and law reform changes. But instead now we've got them having an interest in that model continuing. And that's, I think, what makes it deeply troubling. Now, two significant sources of power in how we have public debates will be aligned in support of this kind of business model. All right. Sorry. And te- you were going to tell us about the algorithm as well. That's uh, another. Totally. Yeah. Well, the other key uh, kind of provision in the code gives uh, media companies access to changes in the algorithm that might affect how their news stories get ranked. And my concern here is that what this allows to do together with the, the, the data sharing provision is that it really allows media companies to start finding ways to optimise their content um, for uh, boosting it in, in any search or news feed ranking, um, which is really not the kind of uh, journalism we need at this particular moment. So it, it really kind of incentivizes that kind of activity where we've got clickbaity kind of journalism that ranks well, that sends more users through to your website that you can then sell on as an audience for advertising instead of what the code was designed to do which is to fill these gaps that exist in the fourth estate supposedly you know in terms of investigative journalism regional rural affairs specialist beats those kinds of gaps that have emerged they're not going to be filled because or I think it's very unlikely that they'll be filled um, as a result of this code specifically in part because I think there's other bits of the code that incentivize other forms of journalism which are likely to make more money for these media companies companies. So why would they bother investing in the journalism we actually need? How, how, what are other ways that people should really be aware of how this affects them negatively? Well, the other one that comes to mind, of course, is that um, the internet and a number of digital platforms has facilitated uh, lots of interesting, diverse media on particular topics. in, mm-hmm. And it's clear as well, like satire, like the work that you guys do, that that's kind of very newsworthy content. It helps people understand issues. It's uh, a legitimate part, in my view, of, of what a robust, diverse media should be. Um, however, those uh, those publishers, those content makers, will largely be excluded. So um, the other way this comes to the fore, I suppose, this issue that we're all losing if we're not a big tech platform or a media organisation is that we want a diverse media. Most citizens want a diverse media, see the need for it, see the potential advantage of, of journalists being able to access audiences outside traditional gatekeepers like mastheads or, or tech platforms. But instead what this creates is a uh, section of, of um, a small number of publishers and commercial media organisations that will then get to be put forward as legitimate sources of news, will get the revenue that results from that. Smaller players won't get access to that revenue. It's very unlikely you have to meet certain criteria in order to be able to strike a deal like this with Google or Facebook or other tech platforms. You have to be of a certain size. You have to have a certain amount of revenue. You have to be producing predominantly Australian content. And you also have to be subject to journalist standards, which sounds fine, but the juice would be excluded. Lots of other YouTubers and people who write substacks would probably be excluded, for example. So all these kinds of technological advances that Mm. have actually managed to contribute to a more diverse media Mm. are largely ignored by this. Mm. And the result will be that we get news products from Google and Facebook, you know, something like a new showcase, which will give precedent to those traditional media organisations. And that might be fine if it's, you know, something like The Guardian, which I think probably out of all of them will actually devote their their new revenue to journalism. But um, but imagine like Sky News with their climate deniers, um, with Lauren Southern as one of their contributors being uh, held up as a legitimate source of media that we must now take very, very seriously, despite the fact that it's basically partisan hackery that makes our democracy worse. They get a privileged position 
position of appearing in these kinds of news products on, on Google and Facebook, which is how a large number of people consume their news. So there's potentially quite toxic effects with elevating some of these platforms as well, um, not to mention for the user, of course, in deprioritizing them, getting content from non-traditional sources, which can often be very elucidating, you know, much more engaging uh, and and provide a bit of an outsider perspective, which is really valuable. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it pisses me off because, you know, people like us, we've spent, you know, the best part of the last decade using this new platform called the internet. I mean, Facebook specifically, YouTube and so on. But we've used it to create a, a, an alternative voice. Um, and I say we, I mean, a lot of other creators, not just in Australia, obviously, but around the world. Um, which has really threatened the monopoly, the information monopoly that, you know, big news um, and, um, you know, like the, the Murdoch empire, with, which we often hear about. Um, and it's frustrating to see government now stepping in because, you know, especially at this liberal government, liberal for our uh, US viewers, meaning conservative government, which is always banging on about, you know, the free market and, you know, all that and uh, sort of railing against socialism, now stepping in to really correct the market and saying, no, no, we need to, um, we need to do something about this, um, which then you know, takes tilts tilts it away from, as you said, now puts us at a at a disadvantage. Uh, but it's complicated because, as you said at the very start, there is a legitimate problem. So you can't say we do want government to get involved. We do want government to help uh, nurture and protect media and media diversity. So, with that in mind, what is in your opinion, uh, the correct way or a better way or a more effective way of reaching the outcome that we all want here? Um, if it's yeah. not the code, what is it? Yeah, totally. So I think it's a very legitimate question. And I think one of the ways to kind of understand is to think about what objective you're trying to achieve. So, you know, if you're trying to hold big tech accountable because you think they're too powerful, I think we have to find ways to tax them more. Uh, and there are experiments around the world with that. You know, somewhere like France does tax on revenue rather than profit, which uh, to some degree stems the, the flow of profits into offshore tax havens uh, and, and allows then the government to spend it on things as they choose. So, you know, taxing big, big tech platforms, finding other ways through regulatory reform, including on things like privacy to undermine their business model. I think these are very important steps to stop them dominating in largely unaccountable ways how we engage with public life. So I think it's an important thing to think about. Of course, then there's a secondary question that goes with this debate. How do we make sure journalism gets done uh, in ways that are necessary to be able to sustain our democracy? And I think there's lots of different experiments we could do with that. People have floated different things. Um, obviously, we've got a public broadcaster here. So greater investment in the public broadcaster would be a first start um, because it's actually a, like a life-saving resource. You know, as you watch bushfires wildly zigzag across the country, sometimes people's only source of information was the public broadcaster in their local community giving them insights about where to go. And so you, this is an essential service. So I think it needs to be properly funded. Too often this has been politicised by our government and, and funding's been cut from it. And, in fact, this now private source of revenue may in fact further that because it can then justify a government cutting more funds to the public broadcaster, which right. is another source of concern. But sorry, on your first point on taxing, mm. um, why do you say that, that, you know, if we do that, so I feel like, you know, so yes, we tax, let's say we tax Google and Facebook on, on revenue rather than, than income. How does that benefit? How does that help us reach the goal? Are you saying then use that money to support journalism initiatives? Is that Potentially. I mean, I actually think that companies that are too large are just a problem, to, to, to right. put it bluntly, especially when they make too much money, because it has all sorts of insidious consequences. I mean, these companies spend, you know, 
hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying politicians. So they're in the room when those policy decisions are being formulated and made and and users, people who represent the human rights of people who use the internet are not because they're not as well funded. So I think having companies that make too much money, that are too dominant, that are able to manipulate how regulation happens so that it suits them, that's a problem in and of itself. But of course, then what we could do, and part of the problem with the code is that it wasn't structured like this, we could have government collect money and then devote it to services that we actually need. So, you know, then government could spend on the public broadcaster. You could also see government schemes that were at arm's length that allowed cadet journalists to be trained and to get a head start in the industry to incentivize that. I mean, at the moment in Australia, at least, a huge amount of research done in universities is funded by the government, but it's done at an arm's length. Um, and that means that you can you can do a PhD and, and get funded by the government to do it, even if your research is quite critical of government policy. There's an argument you could set up a similar scheme for journalists, right. for example. There's all sorts of experimentation I think you could do with that. And at least then the government would be held accountable for how that money is spent. And you could argue that it should be spent on journalism as opposed to the code, which essentially just set up tra- a transfer of money from big tech to media companies with no, no consequences if that money is not spent on journalism. No, right. no guidance at all about what that will be spent on. So I prefer the democratic element there. Right. Okay. And that's a really good point. So I think we also make the point in the, in the, in the video that there is no, there's nothing in the code that says that money that Mm. doesn't necessarily go to, I mean, I'm I'm sure some of it will, but it, but you know, a lot of it could go to shareholders and CEO bonuses. There's nothing there to actually ensure that it goes where it's actually needed. Um, And I'm not sure how much transparency we have in these deals because they're all backroom deals. Each company is making their own deal. Yeah, it's a very kind of um, it's a, it's a business transaction as opposed to a democratic yeah. uh, transaction out in the open where we know what's going on here. So um, yeah, um, I mean, if they wanted to reform the law, that's yeah. one thing that they could do. For example, require that that be made public and an right. accounting be done of what's spent on journalism. But of course, that wasn't really ever part of the equation. So there's a reason why it's not in the code um, right. that that kind of unaccountability is baked in. Right. Yeah, so it feels like a, a very neoliberal kind of approach to dealing with this problem. Government steps in on behalf of massive companies, makes a deal with massive other massive companies. We don't know much yeah. about it. We'll see how it goes, you know. Um, but anyway, look, um, it, there's obviously there's a lot more to this. It's it's quite a complicated topic, but thank you for giving us that snapshot now. Just to bring us into the present, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, as everybody knows, Facebook shut down the whole of news uh, in, in Australia. And, um, you know, can you just explain to us, was that a bargaining tactic? Why did they resort to doing that? And if it was, what was the outcome of this sort of standoff between Facebook and the Australian government? And has the government um, made some some amendments to the code? What was the outcome of that? Yeah, you're right. So Facebook essentially banned the sharing of news content. That's what they said they did. Of course, the consequences that um, arose from that were much more widespread. So anything that even vaguely looked like news, it didn't even really have to be news, um, was prevented from being able to be shared. Can I just say for the record, I think that's a disgraceful thing to have done. There was no legal requirement that they had to do it. The law hadn't even passed. I thought it was a a weaponisation of users to advance their bargaining position. And can I just say for the record as well, Digital Rights Watch had their page largely stripped of content. So I think that's pretty ironic given we've actually been advocating against the code, but we, we, you know, we're critics of Facebook um, often. So I'm I'm not surprised we got caught up in it, but I think the whole episode was disgraceful. It was, I think, designed to strengthen their bargaining position with the government. And they did wring concessions out of the Australian government as a result. There were a number of amendments put in place uh, to the legislation that ultimately passed, which I think does give Facebook an advantage. 
One of them, just for the record, is that they'll get notice if they are designated under the code. So the code's a pretty complicated legislative instrument. It actually doesn't apply to anybody uh, or to any tech platform unless they're designated. And Facebook now will get notice if the government intends to designate them. So the idea of that designation is sort of a risk, a threat that the government can hold over companies to incentivize them to make deals for payment for content. Um, but Facebook will get a month's notice before any designation planned by the minister, which I think will eventually serve as a bit of a Damocles sword, because what it means is Facebook can do the same thing again. Uh, if it thinks it's going to be designated because it, uh, the government thinks it's not doing a good job bargaining with media companies, it can say, okay, well, we're going to we'll bow out, we're going to stop yeah. allowing it. Mm. And they know they've already done it once. They know they've they've taken the heat politically for it. Um, they they could probably refine the algorithm so it's a bit more careful in what it strips off their platform. But I think that's what really what they've been um, they've been able to do there. Negotiate a bit of flexibility for themselves, and there's a couple of other ways in which that's true. Uh, but I don't think there's any doubt that they got something out of doing that. Um, okay. And you know they say they're going to restore it. They still haven't for many people. Uh, but it's pretty disgraceful look, in my view. I just had a look. Yeah, there was on. a couple of news pages that that I um, the ones that I looked they're all back up. But um, um, maybe it's taking some time for other pages to come back online. But sorry, yeah. It's, well, it's hugely destructive as well. Like, I think it's easy to think that the banning of sharing of news content doesn't mean much, but this is kind of like, you know, South Australian Health, a bunch of different health and community organisations in the context of where we're trying to roll out a vaccination program for coronavirus, and that is one of the ways in which these um, these organisations communicate with their stakeholders. It's really disgraceful to not provide any notice, to not allow anybody to plan for it, to not, you know, one of the things that we've done, at least at Digital Rights Watch, is we're no longer engaging with Facebook. We're trying to build our community outside of them. And I think any kind of community organisation, any media organisation, to be honest, ought to be thinking pretty carefully about whether they try to build up their resilience outside of this platform. Because mm. essentially what Facebook has said with this amendment and with their conduct over the last little while is that they, they're prepared to, to sell out users to advance their own position and you won't have much recourse if they make a, a policy change on a whim that suits them economically. Uh, and so, you know, we need to start thinking about how we can make sure we build power outside of that platform so we're not so dependent on their decisions. I don't think this has happened anywhere else in the world, but this is really what happens when we allow, as you said, a company to get so big, so powerful that it can literally turn the switch off on an entire uh, nation's um, communication infrastructure. It's, 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 it should be a wake-up call. Um, and it's a wake-up call, I'm sure, not, you know, not just in Australia, but around the world. Everyone's really noticed this. Can you give us a sense of, does this code uh, represent like a primer or a, a sort of like a blueprint for uh, legislation that other countries around the world are going to um, sort of try and follow? I've heard that Canada is already sort of introducing, looking at something similar. Other countries are going, look at what Australia's done, you know. And again, this is coming to how this whole debate is being framed, which is like, oh, who won, you know? Um, the Australian government managed to sort of get the better of Facebook. It's a, it's a message that's been that we're seeing a lot, and other countries are going. We need to do that here too, uh, which just makes you go massive face palm. It's like, you know, is is this um, legislation going to now be replicated elsewhere in it in its current form? Do, are you are, is that a concern? 
I'm certainly nervous about it. It's one of the reasons why we thought it was really important to talk about all the policy problems. Uh, you're right, Canada is considering something. Uh, the EU has also talked about uh, watching what's happened here and trying to replicate something similar. I mean, each jurisdiction will have its own reasons why it can or can't do this, but I think this should be treated as a cautionary tale rather than some exemplar of how you can bring big, the power of big tech to heal. Um, and at the very least, I would hope that some of the things that we talked about um, outside of the payments range would be removed from any legislation because of the reasons we gave. So I think it is um, something that other countries watch. Unfortunately, I feel like Australia is commonly a place where we experiment with policy solutions that are not very good and then yeah, applied I mean, in other parts of the world. Just a few years mm. ago, we had the anti-encryption legislation, which was the first of its kind. And, you know, Australia seems to be the, the test ground for a lot of these, um, for these, a lot of these yeah. policies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we also, we have some pretty outdated privacy legislation amongst other things, but we also don't have a Human Rights Act. We have no human rights formally enshrined in law, which does mean we sit apart from um, other liberal democracies, you know, most obviously the United States, but also Europe, where there is a culture of rights. And I think that partly does explain how some of these more egregious policies that leave users, that leave citizens, that leave um, everyday people out of the equation, where you really feel like your rights are this afterthought that is maybe considered later mm. as an, an unfortunate sacrifice as mm. part of the bigger picture and it, it does feel that way so it is very critical I think that we change that in Australia but it's also a reason why I, I suppose there's these experiments that occur here yeah and look I feel like that's a really good um, good point to mention that you chair Digital Rights Watch which is an organization that really was created to try and rectify this very problem um, and, you know, we desperately need, we needed something like this in Australia maybe 10 years ago, but it's better late than never. But, you know, we really need that kind of representation to help un people understand, um, because Australia really is a weak sort of underbelly of the digital rights movement globally. It feels like if we don't patch this hole, uh, more of this, this, uh, these um, attacks on, on, uh, are going to keep slipping in. So for the sake of the world, we need to fix um, what's happening down here. And with that in mind, can you give us a bit of a sense of what Digital Rights Watch does? You know, if, if people are listening to this and are interested in uh, this, the issues that we've spoken about um, and the state of the internet generally, what are, what are some other issues that uh, Digital Rights Watch is um, watching now and sort of trying to raise awareness about? Yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, we essentially advocate for freedom and fundamental rights online, and we try and do that through campaigning, through law reform advocacy, um, through public education. So uh, we do collaborate with colleagues overseas a lot to get the positions right on various policy proposals, but also to serve as a, um, as a resource for others who may confront similar policy proposals. So we definitely want to talk to our colleagues in other jurisdictions if they're confronting something similar uh, and want to know more about why we've objected and, and what we think the key problems are to this policy proposal. We also do work in, um, you know, on issues like privacy. So at the moment we're going through an, a, a review of our Privacy Act here in Australia. And so we're providing extensive input into that process because it's one of the ways in which you, you can undermine the power of big tech and, and um, try to reclaim some of the power of digital technology for everyday people. I mean, we also look into other policy proposals. The other one that comes to mind is there's now an online safety act proposed in Australia which, again, we think could be a leader in a bad way in terms of giving powers to uh, a regulator to take down content associated with um, potential harm for children. Uh, and this is, 
the way in which so many of these proposals are put forward, a legitimate problem, which is harming children on the internet, just like the decline of the fourth estate, but then overreach by government authorities or poorly designed regulation. And so we're engaging with that, that topic again, because this is a problem that's confronted all around the world, a legitimate problem that needs to be solved or needs to be addressed. But it's quite critical that we, you know, don't make the problem worse by giving the wrong kinds of powers to regulators that undermine um, freedom and fundamental rights. So there's lots of uh, kind of policy topics like that that are on the agenda that just have so many commonalities with the experience of other kind of digital rights organisations overseas. Um, yeah, and if, if people, like I, whenever something comes up, it's like a tech-related issue or a policy or something like that, I really, I've made a habit of going to digitalrightswatch.com.au to kind of go, like, what, what is that, what, where does Digital Rights Watch stand on this? Um, you know, because I feel like the, a lot of the analysis that, that, um, that is put out really provides a, an excellent way of understanding uh, and, and this uh, this code was an exact example of that you know there was so much bullshit on either side and um and the, the content that you and digital rights watch have been putting out your colleagues as well on the, on the, uh, on that org has really helped to kind of provide a, a much better way a much better frame of understanding the legislation so i really encourage people to you know sign up to the newsletter um, or at least bookmark the website and make a habit of going there to find out how to understand because a lot of these issues are complicated and that's exactly how a lot of this shitty legislation gets passed is that people don't understand um what it, what it's about so the, we need to increase that sort of level of literacy and i feel like digital rights watch is is really helping to do that to educate people in a you know not without getting too technical but actually helping people to understand what is going on and if I could say as well, I think we are making gains, like here in Australia, but also around the world. Like I've been watching this space for a number of years and it's not long ago that someone like Mark Zuckerberg was seriously talked about as being a candidate for president. And it's through like the relentless work and advocacy of digital rights organisations that he's now reframed as someone who exploits people online for, you know, considerable gain. And his company needs to change. And, you know, we've now, we're now seeing an administration in the United States where I think, you know, pressure should continue, but it looks like there's an agenda for reform to potentially break up big tech companies to hold them to account in, in more new different ways which is a complete transformation from you know say five years ago uh, and I think it's quite heartening so the number of people who kind of talk about these issues is growing we are growing in our ranks uh, and we will start to see change happen and we get better policy making as a result now but uh, it does require a diverse and engaged movement and the more people who can talk about these issues with some literacy the better even if they're involved in campaigns that don't seem like Mm -hmm. tech campaigns there'll be a way in which technology touches upon it and uh it's really important we think to talk about ways to protect rights in that context and, and we like to yeah. serve as a resource for any kind of community organizing that goes on to be able to provide input on that and, and so we can be on the same page in terms of advocating for human rights online now look i was going to wind this up lizzie but you made the mistake of mentioning the reforms that are happening in the us right now uh, and uh, oh. I feel like that's a really important um, point. And just to, with, because I know that's a whole other a massive thing, but can you just explain to us what is happening? Because this is, uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden can, did campaign on, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he did campaign on like, you know, we've got to regulate or break up Facebook or, you know, we need to take on these big media companies. So, and that seems to be something that he, he is acting on. Um, you know, these, these oversight committees are now starting to call up Twitter and Facebook and these uh, big orgs. What is happening there? And also potentially, if you could just also mention, because like people like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi have really weighed in on this debate, saying, framing it as like, you know, this is actually an attack on free speech. This is uh, uh, this is about the Democratic Party trying to censor, uh, you 
know, in the wake of the capital attacks, using this as a sort of like a, um, a 9-11 event to use to bring in similar Patriot Act legislation to silence freedom of speech. Um, so there is a, um, we're, I feel like we're on the cusp of a major debate about this, uh, which has been building up over years and is now coming to a head between privacy and breaking up, uh, sorry, yeah, privacy and, and regulating these companies, but also being careful about not infringing on, on free speech. Yeah, I think it is a really interesting question. So obviously, over the last 12 months or so, there have been a number of inquiries um, within the US Congress and Senate about various issues associated with big tech. So that includes both whether they should be able to continue as large companies that acquire smaller companies to diversify their offerings and whether, you know, the test for allowing mergers to happen, something like, you know, Facebook and WhatsApp, whether that's appropriate, whether it should be reversed. And Joe Biden in particular seems to, the administration seems at least um, has a particular focus on Facebook. They don't have a lot of love for that company. And so I think it is worth watching how potentially some of those issues around antitrust get resolved. There is also um, a separate debate about whether platforms should be held accountable for content appearing on their platform uh, and whether they have responsibility for that. Uh, I think that is a more complex question and we do have to be quite careful about preserving one of the good things about the internet, which is that it does allow people to say things that they might not be otherwise able to have a platform to say. Um, but I don't think we're also going to win that argument by just complaining about free speech, to be honest, because it can be very harmful. And I think we do need to talk about when where that line is. And I'm not sure I'm always convinced by progressive voices or people who claim to be progressive um, taking one absolute absolutist line or another. So it is a very complex issue uh, and I think we do need to find ways to regulate it. But I just keep returning to what makes these companies profitable and powerful is that they've exploited users for too long. And so I think regulating around giving people control over their information because that's essentially what powers these companies handing over information which is then used to sell to advertisers that's that's the key way in which i think we can start to undermine some of that power and get you know greater competition within the field of providing platforms for people's voices part of the reason why we get these ancillary problems associated with free speech is because there's only a few small platforms that dominate the space and and one answer to that then is to open up that market to competition so there's more places in which people can speak but also there's less of that incentive to gather information to make money through advertising that's centralized in a small number of companies so that's the way i'd approach it but I think it's a really complex issue that we're all going to have to think about pretty carefully because the rules that are getting set now may, may be in place for a long time. Thanks very much for sharing some of that insight with me um, uh, and, our, and our audience here on the Juice Media Podcast, Lizzie O'Shea. Um, been great to have you back. This is a, not an issue that's going to go away. I feel like this is like a new era that's kind of opening up uh, in, in the chapter of the internet and digital rights. And thank you for guiding us and helping us to understand it better today and, uh, and in the work that you do at Digital Rights Watch. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Juice Media Podcast. I hope you have a better understanding of the news media bargaining code which was just passed into law. You can follow Lizzie on Twitter and if you'd like to be better informed about all the latest digital shitfuckery the Australian government is coming up with, make sure to head to digitalrightswatch.org.au and sign up to their newsletter. Now before I sign off, I'd like to acknowledge some feedback I've received over our latest video. Whilst the response has been overwhelmingly positive, 
I received some negative feedback from some people relating to the inclusion of a certain cameo. I want to thank those who have brought up their concerns with me in a constructive way. Honestly, a lot of these things have slipped under my radar as I've evidently not been following what's happened as closely as many of you. So I'll inform myself more about the issues people have raised. What I will say, however, is that the inclusion of other people in our video was never intended to promote anything other than our shared concern over the news code legislation. As always, I want to give a shout out to our patrons who make the podcast and the Honest Government ads possible. In particular, our patron producers who support us at the highest level of $100 a month. Thank you. You've been listening to the Juice Media Podcast with me, Giordano. We'll be back very soon with our next Honest Government ad. Till then, take care.